0: the summer months, I'm proposing that we go to the Old Testament because we haven't been there for a while for one good reason, but also to learn some of the dramatic encounters that we can find there, and they will mostly be familiar passages to you where we see God meeting people at some crucial turning place in their life. I've called this series Turning Points, meeting God at a crossroads in a person's life. And we're going to be engaging with this until about Labor Day with a variety of Old Testament passages. I turn today to a very familiar place, Genesis chapter 3. And I only decided actually Friday afternoon that I would be dealing with this passage for two weeks because it's so important and there's so much to be said about it so that this will be a to-be-continued, if you will, uh, after Lord willing, next week as I come back to this passage. Listen to God's word, Genesis 3, the first 15 verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And the Lord said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is God's word, true in everything that it teaches. My concern as we look at some great stories of the Old Testament in these summer months is not simply to introduce you to heroes or great figures of the past, nor to simply let you learn moral values from what people did right or wrong. But to ask more particularly, what can we learn about God as men and women have encounters with him in his word? Beyond any question, if we were to nominate a list of the most important passages, I'm not saying favorite passages in the ones maybe you would like the best or that make you feel good, but most important passages of the Bible that contribute as cornerstones of its development and what it teaches, you would have to say... That Genesis chapter 3 is on a fairly short list. In fact, if somebody said to me, I believe Genesis 3 is the most important chapter in the Bible, I would not disagree with that. Here in the splendor of the Garden of Eden, God has made the man and woman as the epitome of his creation, exhibiting his own image, able to fellowship with him at the highest level of everything that God had made, blessing them, giving them privileges giving them one prohibition so that they would remain the creature and he would remain God. And then we see what happens. We can never put too much emphasis on Genesis 3 because after it, nothing is ever the same again. Now we ask a question to start with, did Adam and Eve really exist? Were these flesh and blood people we're talking about here? Or are they just somehow symbolic were legendary. Were there was there just one man and his wife who actually were both the biological and spiritual progenitors of the entire human race? Those questions are very current. This whole subject's being discussed a lot today. I think because it's rather a litmus test of what you think of the entire book of Genesis and and how you look at its history. I know there was a seminar in Philadelphia just a month or two ago in which 400 people came to hear speakers talk, biologists and theologians and others were Adam and Eve real people. You may have read about the Human Genome Project in which the chromosome, I don't understand these things very well, I'm not a scientist, but the... The human chromosome has now been mapped or analyzed in such a way that we can understand what, what all different parts of it contribute to our makeup. And the man who's the head of that project, Dr. Francis Collins, is a professing Christian. But interestingly to me, Dr. Collins would be a person who supports what we would call theistic evolution. God's a creator, but he used the evolutionary process basically to bring all things to pass, including man. And so he would see Adam and Eve, I think, as symbols or legends, something that's instructive, something that's helpful, but not to be understood very literally. In contrast, though, there are abundant reasons to follow the traditional view, which says that the early chapters of Genesis are indeed history. Now, they're a different kind of history than you read in your newspaper if you were following a reporter who was saying this or that crime happened on on such and such a street in Lancaster, and here's what the police know, and here's what the witnesses saw. That's a kind of history. It's not the kind of history that's in Genesis. But you can have history represented in different forms. There were no reporters to give us Genesis. God himself had to open the mind of Moses to show him what he did. But we know, for example, that Jesus Christ regarded Adam as a real person. So did the Apostle Paul. And we know that it's very consistent to understand that these things are not somehow just symbolic or just non-literal. These are real people who made real choices that are the same kinds of choices we would have made in their place. And God says, therefore, we're of the same stock and we're colored by the choices they made because we would have made them and we do make them. And so we witness in Genesis 3 the decline and fall of humanity from a place of glory and privilege and blessing and responsibility in chapter 2 to a place of shame and great difficulty by the end of chapter 3. In Darwin's scheme of things, in his paradigm, he says man began as something not man, some kind of creature, some kind of organism, and slowly climbed out of the primordial soup to be something higher. The Bible has a completely different paradigm. It says man started at the top. Man started with God's image upon him and God's dignity, and he fell downward. That's an absolutely different understanding than what Mr. Darwin began to contribute to us more than a century ago. Well, the astounding issue that I want to bring you of Genesis 3 is not so much to dwell upon. The fall, it's here and it's important, and I will speak of it. But I want this morning, in the one main application that I will make, is for you to see before I finish how God did not entirely walk away or abandon the man and woman whom He had made, even when they abandoned Him. Even when they rebelled directly against Him. He did not leave them. He approached them. He came to them. He beckoned to them. And all that's really found in the question, Adam where are you? I have three things to put before you today. The first is from verses one to five of what I would call the deceivers, reckless attack. Now, certainly a premier difficulty with many people looking at Genesis is the very first words. Now, the serpent, well, wait a minute, what are we talking about here? You know the Sunday school pictures I think many of them are very unfortunate when they picture a coiled snake with its tongue flicking in and out, somehow having a conversation with Eve. The serpent was in a form that I believe strongly we do not know what that form was. If you would look at verse 14, you would see in our text that crawling on your belly in the dust is something that serpents do after the curse. The Hebrew word for serpent is a very unique and and interesting word. It's nakash, one of those words you have to catch at the back of your tongue, nakash. And it has a curious meaning. It means upright, shining one. What do you picture with someone who's upright and shining? I don't picture a coiled snake. The serpent was something we don't understand. God hasn't given us to understand this. What the form was that that Eve saw with this being that she communicated with, we don't know, nor do we know where he came from. But I think you could have in your mind a picture of something more like a man than like a rattlesnake. This was a being created by God, able to communicate, who unfortunately was not communicating the words or the thoughts of God but Eve received him as being winsome, beguiling and convincing. Now that person doesn't have that form anymore today we don't believe. Now the name of Satan isn't mentioned here and yet certainly it is an opponent of God who's speaking. In John 8:44 Jesus called the devil a liar who's the father of lies. In Revelation 12, we read that that ancient serpent, the devil, is the deceiver of all world. Where did this person come from? Where did this creature come from? How did it have these powers to speak? Where did these thoughts originate? None of those questions are answered. But we know pretty quickly that the voice we're hearing here is a voice that we could only call anti-God for sure. Now, you need to notice how that attack on the truthfulness of God began. It began with an insinuation, a question. The worst question that could ever be asked, I think, is the question asked here. Did God really say that? By the way, that's a question asked by just about every college professor who will ever assault the faith of your young person when they're in their classroom. Oh, did don't you went to Sunday school and you really believe that stuff that you were told God said, come on, grow up. That's where it begins. With an insinuation that you're ignorant if you believe what God said. I'm sure you know that rainwater can actually split granite boulders starting with a little crack. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. But if I understand the geology I learned, rain can settle into a crack in the rock and freeze and thaw and freeze and thaw and expand and contract until the crack expands and the rock eventually splits. That's what we've got here, a crack in the rock where doubt can enter and people can be made to think. And young people growing up in the world can be made to think, oh, I guess intelligent people don't think that after all. All the people who taught me to trust God's word must have something wrong with them. John Calvin said, because this enemy of God would never have attacked God and tried to drag God off his throne, couldn't have done it anyway, he assaulted the woman and he assaulted her rather gently at first, Calvin said, by simply planting a seed of doubt. That was the crack in the granite that the water seeped into The utter truthfulness of the word of God, ladies and gentlemen, means everything. The Bible must be believed. It is not a book of nonsense. It is a book breathed out from God. Yes, there are harder things in it in some places to understand than in others. There are things that are literal. There are things that are poetic. There are things that are prophetic and symbolic. And you need to learn the difference and study and try to understand those differences. But it's a book that is true in every part, and every assertion, and every word. One of you sent me a quote, knowing I was dealing with this chapter this week. I, I'm always I'm off, well. I'm not always glad when you email me. There are things you email me that I'm not glad about, but I was glad for this email. And someone said, Pastor, do you know this quote from Dr. R. C. Sproul? Here's the quote: If God Almighty opens His holy mouth, declares something, comma. We don't need another witness. It's over and settled. And I say amen. The very notion that God's truthfulness is somehow in your hands for you to figure out which words he said were true and which were not is the ultimate folly, and it's the crack in the rock where you will begin to fall away from Christianity. The breathed-out word of God is an all-or-nothing proposition. It's all true. Now, you see at verse 4, of course, it goes from an insinuation to a direct contradiction. Now, the enemy says, you won't surely die. God told you that would happen. It won't happen. Now, we've got a direct attack. You know, I kind of love, uh, you see in some of these movies of Middle Ages when they were besieging a castle, I'm always fascinated with the, the catapults How they'd put these great big boulders or flaming balls or something in an iron basket and these big complicated machines, and you watch the Lord of the Rings or something like that, and these mammoth machines swing out and the leverage throws this great big thing to batter the castle. That's what we've got now. Not an insinuation, a frontal attack. You won't die. I deny it. God's wrong. He's trying to hold something back from you. Well, I'm going to say more about this point of the Word of God next time. But this much today, we stand or fall every day on the foundation of divinely revealed Scripture. If you chip away the ledge on which you stand, called Holy Scripture, you will slide off the mountain, called Christianity. God's Word cannot be broken. But the deceiver made a reckless attack against it. Now, secondly... We're told about humanity's ruinous awareness here. I think it's correct to understand that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and its fruit, whatever kind of fruit it was, had no magic to it. It wasn't a poisoned apple like Snow White ate that made her fall on the floor. It really wasn't the properties of the tree that actually mattered. It was the test of obedience that it represented. And we read here, the woman saw the fruit was good for food and delightful to the eyes. You see, temptation is almost always delightful to the eyes. It's never going to be ugly and sordid and and threatening and and look like something awful. It's going to be delightful and sweet-looking. Today, pastors know one of the worst epidemics we deal with that destroys lives and marriages and everything else is the lure of pornography on the internet. Percentages of men and boys involved in this is simply tremendous. And the damage is enormous. And what does that look like when you first approach it? Why, here's a young man who approaches it and says, why, these are just anonymous young women, minus clothes. And they're very nice looking. What harm can there be from my taking in these images a few times and looking this over? Exactly what he faced in the garden. Exactly. It looked great. It looked sweet. It looked like instant gratification was there and what was really there was destruction. The destruction of relationships and the destruction of yourself. Well, one of the incredible things I'd say here and we're moving on quickly today, is to see that Adam was appointed the leader of his wife. Can go read chapter 2. They were equals before God. They were equally intelligent. But in role relationship, God made Adam the leader of his wife. And so, of course, what you see here is Adam taking the lead, right? Hmm. Adam, you don't get a gold star for leadership in Genesis 3. The wife gave him his fruit. It doesn't say he contemplated it at all. And he ate. That's all it says. And he ate. That's simple. No leadership. And yet Adam was the one held responsible by God. You don't read in the Bible, you know, God charged Eve with the crime. He charged Adam. He was supposed to be the leader. And then it says their eyes were open. They saw the ugliness. You know, it had been promised you'll have knowledge that's like God's. Well, there was sort of a thread of truth in that, but also a big thread of falsehood because what they didn't see was, was beauty or goodness. Now they, they saw and they lived and they experienced the ugliness. It's kind of like looking at a, a prison. I, I've always been fascinated at the castle appearance of Lancaster's prison. When I first saw it, I was amazed. I said, wow, look at that building. And, you know, on the outside, if you stood way back and look, you say, oh, look at that interesting castle that's in Lancaster, just a castle. If you didn't notice the barbed wire and a few other things, you'd think, "Wow, oh, castle, cool. But get a little closer and go through the doors and go inside and you'll have a very different impression. Well, that's the way this is. Their eyes were opened. They entered and saw things that made them believe they now were in the pit of hell. Their own bodies were now shameful to them. The, the knowledge of one another was something... For bitterness and blaming. Marriage, which had been created to be bliss, was now a combat zone. Look at the way they're blaming each other immediately before God. Now, the serpent said, You won't surely die. And you say, Well, that was true. They didn't die right away. They actually, Adam lived centuries. But they did die right away. They died right there, their spirits died. You know I've never been an admirer of Pablo Picasso. Maybe some of you who are great artists or, or you are artists anyway can explain to me how I'm supposed to appreciate Picasso, but I never have. I like some modern art, but I don't like I would never hang anything from him in my home. And especially I don't like the the sort of grotesque examples of Picasso's art. You know where he will draw like a woman's face and she has three ears and and four eyes and the nose is at the top of her head and and he's interpreting, he's, he's giving you a message to be sure. I don't like the message. But I take that kind of a, a distorted Picasso painting to be like what reality now was for Adam and Eve. They were still living in the same reality, but everything was distorted. Everything was out of proportion. Everything was twisted. One writer says they rejected dependence on God and his good commands. They sought autonomy and unbridled freedom, and in doing so, they forged chains of a new slavery. That's exactly right. Their joy evaporated. Instead of effortlessly loving each other and loving God, they were people of the lie. And there were lies and deceptions and blaming going on all over the place. Their pathetic loincloths that they made out of leaves are symbols of every form of self-justification you and I make to try to hide or explain our sin from God. And we can't hide. Thirdly then, and I will especially come back to the last section of this next week, verses 8 through 15 tell us about God's relentless approach. I want you to see what God did not do here that we would have done in the same situation. He did not walk away. He did not destroy them. He did not abandon them to suffer the full consequences of what they had done. He did not extinguish them on the spot in his wrath. What do you see here? Yes, he was stern. Yes, there was justice. Yes, there was a curse of of consequences. But what you need to see here is the grace of God written on this passage. He did not turn his back on the man and woman he had made. And we read this almost mystical language here, which is, I, it really has mystery all around it. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I love that sentence. It's almost like poetry. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. What was that about? What kind of sound did God make? God doesn't have a body What kind of sound did the approach of God, this is a mystery. But it's simply telling us they knew that the Lord was approaching them for fellowship. And prior to this, certainly they would have run toward that fellowship and said, Lord, here we are, you're grateful creatures. How glad we are. You've made us, you've given us this wonderful place. How good it is to commune with you. What do they do now? Where's a big enough tree to get behind? Where's a dense enough grove of bushes for me to dive into? And the Lord God says, where are you? I'm pretty sure God didn't lack a knowledge of where they were. Psalm 139 tells us already, where can I go from your presence? You're there. You know where I am before I get there. He knew where they were. But he also knew that their fellowship with him now was clouded. Something was broken and it had to be fixed. Do you know what you and I do when when we have a tiff with somebody or something enters into a a relationship that kind of makes somebody upset with us, mad with us, or out of sorts with us? At least if we don't live in the house with that person, let's say a work relationship, what do we do? We usually tend to shut down that relationship, at least partially. Yes, stay polite. Yes, oh, hello, but not much more. We avoid that person. We steer away. We go the other direction. We close down. We defriend them from Facebook. How's about that? God has never defriended anybody from Facebook. God approaches the broken person, the transgressor, the guilty, ashamed person in his grace. If you get nothing else this morning, will you get that from this passage? all the tragedy that's in here, there's something wonderful here. God approached the broken man and the broken woman in their shame and said, in essence, why are you hiding? Come out and meet me. Come out and confront what's wrong. I'm preparing a way to deal with it. And as we close today, don't miss all important verse 15 i'm skimming this passage very quickly but notice this note of the gospel this prophecy of christ i was at presbytery meeting yesterday we were we were examining a man for ordination and he you know did very well and he threw us a latin term in the midst of his he was actually referring to this verse And I'll let you learn a Latin term. So if somebody says, what was the sermon about? I don't know how likely you are to be asked that, but you can say, whoa, I learned a Latin term, proto-evangelion. Write that down. It's impressive. Theologian's term. It's a pretty simple term. It means first gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel in the Bible. Why? Why? Because in it, God announced to his enemy who had defied him, who had lied about him, who had ruined the understanding of the woman and the man, I am sending my offspring, the offspring of the woman, who will oppose your offspring and your offspring will bruise his head and you will only bruise his heel. I like better the NIV and other translations to say you will crush, his head will be crushed. And Jesus' heel will be bruised. For that is Jesus. That is the cross. That is the first announcement in all of the Bible. Veiled as it might seem. You know, it's veiled there. They didn't know. Adam didn't say, oh good, Jesus is coming. No, of course not. But we can look back and say, look. God designed in the midst of the mess and the brokenness and the shame when they couldn't even look in his face that he would make a way initiate contact, to come in grace, and to reach and save and resolve this broken situation for millions like them, people just like you. And the question is, will you respond? Or will you die for the bushes? You see, that's what millions of people do. I say, oh, do you know what? I went to church today, and the pastor preached about Adam and Eve as if they were real people. What kind of a nut is he? Doesn't this guy had an education? Doesn't he know anything? I do know what the revealed word of God says. And it says if I run and dive in the bushes and justify myself and blame my wife and blame everybody else around, I'm going to get nowhere. I will live in my sour-tasting, bizarre, askew, chaotic world in my misery. But if I hear God saying, fill in your name, where are you? And I turn to him and I say, God, I'm in a shameful place. I'm in a broken place. I don't know which way is up or which way is down. But thank you for calling my name. I'm here, Lord. Will you help me? You will find that the Jesus promised in Genesis 3.15 has worked out all that you need to resolve your situation. This was God's eternal plan, and he's ready as you respond to him to embrace you with joy right now. He really is. Our Father, help us to understand that Adam's situation was no different than ours. Thank you for putting the gospel so early in the Bible. Thank you for Jesus. Who brought it to reality. Thank you for not turning away from us. In Jesus' name, amen.